In August of 1892, one of the most famous murders in American criminal history occurred in Fall River, Massachusetts. A young woman was accused of murdering her father and stepmother in a crime that was so heinous it left ripples throughout the community for years to come. The trial became a national sensation and the outcome shocked everyone who followed it at the time. This is the story of the life and trial of Lizzie Borden. I'm Ashton and welcome to The Haunted Corner. Welcome back to the Haunted Corner. I have a true crime tale for you, one that you've probably heard, but I'm excited to share this with you all today. I learned a lot, went down a few rabbit holes as usual, and I'd love to hear your take on this case. So definitely reach out with your theories, feelings, and opinions after the episode. Let's get into it. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts, to parents Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. Andrew was a well-known businessman in Fall River, and the Borden family had been among the most influential citizens of the region for several hundreds of years. As of 1892, there were more than 125 families with the Borden name living in the community. Andrew was one of the wealthiest men in the city. He was the president of the town's largest bank, and he sat on the board of directors for a few other banks as well. He was a commercial landlord and also the director of three of the major cloth mills that were a huge part of the city's economy. So he was doing pretty well at the time. He was respected for his business abilities, but despite his wealth, he was very frugal. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which in today's money would be close to $10 million. Andrew and his first wife, Sarah Morse, were married on Christmas Day in 1845. They lived at 92 2nd Street in Fall River and welcomed their first daughter, Emma, in 1851, followed by Lizzie in 1860. Andrew and Sarah also had a daughter named Alice, who was born before Lizzie, but passed away very young from hydrocephalus in 1858. Sarah also passed away in 1863 of what was described as uterine congestion and disease of the spine. Andrew remarried in 1865 to a woman named Abby, and some of the books that I read were not very kind in their descriptions of poor Abby, which is not cool, guys. She was 37, and some say she may have been looking to Andrew to improve her social status, while Andrew needed a wife and mother to run the house and be there for his young daughters, mainly Lizzie, because Emma was in her early teens at that time. So Abby moved into the house, and as time went on, and Lizzie entered into her teenage years, she began pulling away from her stepmother and gravitating towards her sister as the motherly influence in her life. Which, you know, 
to me is understandable, especially as a teen, you know, you're not my mom kind of thing. Um, Emma remained in the house and never married, so she and Lizzie were close. Lizzie lived an active social life, taking on leadership roles in many of the clubs around town. She was the secretary of the Fruit and Flower Mission, which sounds like something I'd be into. She joined the Central Congregational Church in 1885 and was very active in that community as well, teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States. Lizzie became very popular in our social circle, and no one really had a bad thing to say about, about her. During this time, Lizzie and Emma were still living in the home with Abby and Andrew. So three grown women living under the same roof. Tensions were rising. And when Lizzie was 27, she and Abby reportedly had a falling out, and she stopped referring to her as mother. In 1889, the family hired a young Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan as the maid of the house. According to her later testimony, her responsibilities included washing, ironing, cooking, and sweeping. She also claimed that Emma and Lizzie would sometimes call her Maggie. In June of 1890, Lizzie and Emma left on a 19-week European tour, which is also something I'd be interested in. Um, I could really go for a 19-week tour, European tour right now. I'd settle for a 19-day tour or even a 19-hour tour. (laughs) So tensions were brewing. Lizzie and Emma had never married, and things began happening that would foreshadow worse things to come for the Borden family. On June 24, 1891, Andrew and Abby had traveled out of, their, out of town to their farm in Swansea, Massachusetts, while Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget remained at the home in Fall River. On this day, Lizzie was being named to the board of the local Good Samaritan Hospital. But before that could happen, the home was robbed while the three women were there. Apparently, someone ransacked Abby's dressing room and took a watch, a chain, some money, and some car tickets. Lizzie was actually accused by her family of being the thief because she was what some might say a little bit troubled at the time. She was said to have shoplifted in the past, which is kind of strange given her father's wealth. She wouldn't really have a need to shoplift, but And I read that Andrew would go to the stores where she allegedly stole items and pay for them. But no one was ever accused of breaking into the family's home that day. And Andrew installed locks on every room in the house after that. A few months later, more strange activity occurred. In April of 1892, the barn at the Borden home was broken into. Now inside this barn, there were pigeons that Lizzie had become fond of, and she considered them her pets. Well, after the barn was broken into, Andrew believed that the pigeons were drawing attention, and to solve that problem, he killed all of the pigeons with a hatchet. So things were a little tense, to say the least. A few weeks later, both Emma and Lizzie left for for extended vacations. Everyone needed some time away from each other, and when Lizzie returned, she chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family home. Now, after Lizzie returned, more strange things began to occur. Abby and Andrew both fell ill mysteriously around the same time.
Abby even visited her doctor and explained her symptoms, claiming that she believed that someone was trying to poison her and her husband. There was no evidence that the couple had been poisoned, and according to Lizzie, she herself was feeling ill around the same time. There was one witness, however, who would later provide some very interesting testimony. According to Eli Bentz, Lizzie was spotted at D.R. Smith's drugstore where she tried to buy a bottle of prussic acid, which, as we know, is also known as cyanide. But Bentz claimed that he refused to sell it to her, and now all this is happening right before the fateful morning that we're here to discuss. So this is all happening right around the same time. According to Alice Russell, Lizzie reached out to her around this time and was discussing the poisoning and telling her that they had all been sick, all except for Bridget, the maid. Lizzie then went on to tell Alice that she was worried that her father had an enemy. She claimed that one night she heard him talking to a man, and she claimed that Andrew didn't want to have the man's business in one of his commercial properties. He argued with the man, then ordered him to leave the house, according to Lizzie. Lizzie told her friend Alice, quote, I'm afraid sometimes that somebody will do something to him. He is so discourteous to people, end quote. That night, which was August 3rd of 1892, Lizzie returned to the house and her uncle, a man named John Morse, was also there. He was staying overnight and slept in the guest room that night. Abby headed to bed around 9.15 and the rest of the household went to bed just after 10 p.m. On the morning of August 4th, Bridget was sick. Now, she hadn't been sick before that night, but she was feeling dizzy and throwing up that morning. Other than that, though, the morning started like any other morning. According to Bridget's later testimony, Abby came down first around 6.30 a.m., with Andrew following her a few minutes later. Bridget began preparing breakfast, which was mutton, broth, johnny cakes, coffee, and cookies. John Morse was present at the breakfast table, and as he recalled, he woke up around 6 o'clock, had breakfast about an hour later, and then read the paper and talked with Andrew until about 9 o'clock. Abby had gone off to start her day after breakfast, and Lizzie woke up around 9 o'clock. By this time, her uncle John had already left the home, and she asked her father Andrew if he would take a few letters with him to mail for her, which he agreed to. By 9.30, Abby had cleaned up the rooms on the first floor and sent Bridget out to clean the windows. Like, can't Bridget get a day off, y'all? She doesn't feel good. Give her a break. While she was cleaning, Bridget heard someone at the front door trying to unlock it, and it was Andrew. He wasn't able to unlock the door, and when Bridget tried opening the door, she found the lock was jammed. At this point, she could hear Lizzie laughing from upstairs. Eventually, she opened the door, and he came in. He had some papers in his hand, and he went to sit in the chair at the head of the lounge. Lizzie, who was upstairs, came down at that point and asked her father if he had any mail for her, to which he replied that he didn't. Lizzie then told him that Abby had gotten a sick note and had gone out. Lizzie then asked Bridget if she was going to go out that afternoon. Bridget told her she wasn't sure if she was going to because she wasn't feeling well. Lizzie said, well, okay, if you do, make sure you lock the door because Abby had gone out and she was planning on possibly going out as well. 
Lizzie later claimed that her father said he was going to lie down, which he did, and he laid on the living room lounge. Lizzie claimed she then went to the kitchen and then to the barn. So Bridget, still not feeling well, decided to take a little bit of a break. She heard the city bell ring and looked at the clock. It was 11 o'clock a.m. She doesn't think she fell asleep at that time, and she only thinks it was a few minutes. She doesn't remember hearing any noises, such as the door opening or anything. That is, until she heard Lizzie yelling from the main floor, quote, Maggie, come down. When she asked what was the matter, Lizzie responded, Come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Bridget, also known as Maggie, rushed downstairs, and Lizzie was standing with her back to the screen door. She told her not to go in the room and that they needed to get the doctor. So Bridget ran to get Dr. Bowen. She didn't find him, but she did tell his wife that Mr. Borden was dead. And when she returned, she asked Lizzie where she was, where she was when it happened, and if the screen door was locked as she had left it. Lizzie claimed she was out in the backyard when she heard a groan. She then came inside, and the screen door was wide open. Lizzie then asked Bridget to go get her friend Alice Russell and bring her to the house. As Bridget was running all over the neighborhood, a neighbor came. A neighbor named Adelaide Churchill saw her and had a feeling that something was going on. So she asked Lizzie what was going on, and Lizzie replied, quote, Oh, Miss Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father, end quote. So the neighbor goes over to the house as well and asks Lizzie where she was at the time. She claimed she had gone out to the barn to get a piece of iron. She then went on a little bit of a ramble about everything that had been going on. She said, quote, Father must have an enemy, for we have all been sick, and we think the milk has been poisoned, end quote. She claimed she didn't know where Abby was or if she had been killed, too. She thought she heard her come home, but she wasn't sure. She then asked Adelaide if she would look for the doctor as well, because he still wasn't there. Now, by the time Dr. Bowen arrived, Alice Russell, Lizzie's friend, had also arrived, so the house was buzzing. He found Mr. Borden in the sitting room laying on the lounge. His face was hardly recognizable as it had been very badly cut by a very sharp instrument. Dr. Bowen felt for a pulse and found none. He asked Bridget for a sheet to cover up Mr. Borden's body, which she went to get. There was conversation about getting word to Abby about her husband's death. Lizzie spoke up to Bridget and said, quote, I'm almost positive I heard her coming in. Won't you go upstairs to see, end quote. But Bridget was adamant that she would not go up the stairs alone. The neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, agreed to go upstairs with Bridget. As they went up the stairs, they could see Abby's body on the floor of the bedroom. She had also been bludgeoned to death. The woman immediately ran downstairs and authorities were contacted. The house was swarming with people. Dr. William Dolan was called. He was the medical examiner for Bristol County, and he arrived around 11.45 a.m. Dr. Dolan inspected the bodies. He noted, quote, the body of Mr. Borden was lying on the sofa. I found that Mr. Borden's hand was warm. The blood was oozing from his wounds, end quote. He also said that Mr. Borden's head was resting on a cushion and his coat was folded up underneath the cushion. He then went upstairs to examine Abby's body. 
She was lying on the floor between the dresser and the bed. Dr. Dolan touched her body and noted the blood was coagulated and of a dark color. He said, quote, the upper part of her dress, the waist was bloody. I found an old silk handkerchief there and took it with me. It was not cut, but it was bloodstained, end quote. It didn't take him very long to determine that Abby had died first. The blood was coagulated, dark, and dry. Unlike Mr. Borden, who was still actively bleeding, bright red blood from his wounds when he had arrived at the home. He also noted that Abby's body was colder to the touch than Andrew's. He made note of what the victims were wearing. Andrew had $81.65 in his pocketbook at the time, and he was wearing a gold ring on his left hand. He attempted to count the wounds on both Andrew and Abby. He collected a sample of the milk from that morning and the previous morning. He then went outside to the cellar where he saw two axes, two hatchets, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. Then he returned to the home later that day and had the scene photographed, which is where the infamous crime scene photos come from. Deputy Marshal John Fleet questioned Lizzie on the day of the murder. She claimed that she was in the barn looking for sinkers to take with her on an upcoming fishing trip at the time of the murders. She repeated this claim later at the inquest, and she also repeated the story that she had told Alice about the man coming to the house and speaking to her father. When they asked Lizzie about her mother's body, she responded, quote, She's not my mother, sir. She is my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. End quote. Oof. After the investigation began, the uncle, John Morse, returned to the home and was notified of the murders. The police eventually left the home, which left Lizzie, John, Bridget, and Alice at the home. Alice later claimed that she was at the home from Thursday until Monday to be there to support Lizzie. Emma rushed home as soon as she heard what had happened, and she and Lizzie began to plan a funeral for their father and their stepmother. Over 1,500 people turned out to the funeral. Lizzie wore a black lace dress and a dark hat. Meanwhile, everyone, while everyone was out of the house, the police were searching the place. They searched both Lizzie and Emma's rooms, but didn't seem to find anything of high importance. But then, the next morning, Lizzie did something that raised some red flags for people involved. According to Alice, when she came down for breakfast, she saw Emmy, Emma and Lizzie in the kitchen. Emma was standing at the sink while Lizzie was at the stove holding a dress in her hand. And when Emma, Emma asked what she was going to do with it, she said, quote, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint, end quote. Immediately, it was pretty clear that this was a mistake. Like, Lizzie, chill. If you weren't involved in this, you're making yourself look real suspicious, girl. So the city marshal, a state officer, and the district attorney met up with the medical examiner to review the case from start to finish. The medical examiner had the clothing worn by the victims dug up and examined. They searched the house again and, the, and confiscated the hatchet head that was missing the handle. They told Lizzie she was officially a suspect, despite having no real physical evidence. There was no blood found on Lizzie, on her clothes, nothing. And how... Would she have had time to change clothes, hide the weapon, etc. in that time? Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. 
Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it's possible that her testimony may have been affected by this. Her behavior was wild. It was really erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen, reading a magazine when her father arrived home, and then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing. And then she also said she was coming down the stairs. She also said that she removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, while police photographs clearly showed him still wearing the boots. On August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and she was jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for, of the, for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June of 1893. On August 12th, Lizzie appeared before Judge Josiah Blaisdell and pleaded not guilty to the charges against her. She was jailed, jailed in Taunton, which was a small town about eight miles from Fall River. Her case was then passed on to the grand jury. The grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Her trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5th, 1893. Emma hired well-known attorneys Andrew Jennings and George Robinson to defend her sister. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time, the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found bludgeoned to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and the Borden's murders were striking and were noted by jurors. One of the main topics of discussion in the trial was the hatchet that was found that was missing the handle. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood but no handle was ever found. Another topic was the dress that Lizzie had burned in the days following the murder. Alice testified that Lizzie had wanted to burn it because it was covered in paint, but some speculate that it wasn't paint, if you know what I mean. The trial was highly publicized and followed. I'm telling you, people have always been interested in true crime. Public sentiment really swayed daily based on the testimonies that were given that day. Of all the witnesses, the most important was Bridget because she was the only other person known to be in the house that day. She described the illnesses that the family had been experiencing as well as what she had been doing that day and the moment that Lizzie called out to her saying that her father was dead. She also spoke well of the relationship that Lizzie had with Abby saying that she hadn't witnessed anything that was less than cordial. John Morris was also questioned, in addition to Dr. Board, Dr. Bowen, who arrived at the house shortly after Andrew was discovered. The neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, claimed that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress at the time she arrived at the home, and her hair was neat, and there was no sign of blood on her hands, body, or dress. The defense called its own witnesses during the trial. Among them was Dr. Benjamin Handy. He was a family friend of the Bordens. He said, quote, I went by the Borden house on the morning of the murders at 9 o'clock and again a little, little after 
saw a medium-sized young man of very pale complexion with his eyes fixed on the sidewalk. He was passing slowly towards the south. He was paler than common and acting strangely. He, walking very slowly, scarcely moving, end quote. Two other residents also offered similar testimony, claiming to have seen a strange man near the Borden house on the morning of the murders. On the last day of the trial, Emma was called to the stand. She described Lizzie's property, including her money in her bank accounts, as well as the number of dresses in their closet. It was now time for closing arguments. The defense attorney, Jennings, argued, quote, there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie A. Borden. There is not a splat of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected to her in any way, shape, or fashion, end quote. The jury was sent out for deliberations, and after only 90 minutes, they returned with a verdict of not guilty. Lizzie cried out and collapsed back into her chair. Lizzie told her sister, quote, now take me home. I want to go to the old place and go at once tonight, end quote. Lizzie and Emma lived together in, a, in Fall River in a large mansion that they purchased with their inheritance. Emma eventually moved out in 1905, and both women died in 1927. At, Lizzie died from pneumonia on June 1, 1927, at age 67, and Emma died nine days later. The sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Lizzie Borden was worth over $250,000 which was equivalent to $5,233,000 in 2021. She owned a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several office buildings, shares in several utilities, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League and $500 in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friend and a cousin each received $6,000, and numerous friends and family members each received between one and $5,000. So I'm sure you've all heard the rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her more mother 40 wax. When she, saw, when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Well, that's not exactly accurate. Abby was hit 19 times while Andrew was hit 10 times. There were a few other rumored suspects but none that were ever taken seriously. And Lizzie Borden's innocence has been the topic of debate ever since. So let me know what you think. Do you think she was innocent? Or do you think she was guilty and she got away with it? What do you think? Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com, and I will link to the blog post in the show notes. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes early and ad-free access to episodes, plus so much more. A new Patreon episode is being launched this week, so head on over there to have access. You can go to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon.